You're listening to Five Things with Lisa Birnbach. Hi, it's Lisa Birnbach. And wow, life is strange. I'm mostly indoors. And when I go outside, which is rare, I get so whacked by the heat. I usually love summer. I mean, it's at least my second favorite season, if not my first favorite season. It's definitely not third or fourth. So one or two. And yet I'm hovering indoors, depriving myself of what is usually a great time in my life. But I want to be careful. I don't want to get anyone sick and I don't want to get sick. And still, there's so much ugliness in the world, especially in our world in the United States. More contentious hearings in Washington that force you to understand or at least to observe that there are two sides that really don't like one another. Was this divide, okay, I'm posing you this question, was this always going to come out and we needed a kind of violently different kind of leadership to expose it? Could we have gone for decades without seeing it? I'm not a historian or even really a student of history, so you tell me. It's something I think about. Out of the pain of the Black Lives Movement, I hope we rectify our mistakes in a serious, empathic, and permanent way. I'm just so sorry that it had to get to this violent, horrible, the, the, the violence and the lives lost and harmed and the wounds so deep. I'm, I'm sorry it came to that. But I do wonder, could we have all behaved and played nicely if we didn't have a president who likes to, as he says, hit back. My guest this week is Chef J.J. Johnson of Harlem's popular field trip restaurant. He's also the author of a cookbook called Between Harlem and Heaven, which won a James Beard Award. Now, J.J. was on a straight trajectory after he graduated from the CIA, meaning the Culinary Institute of America, the country's most prestigious cooking school. Among other people who graduated from there, I can just off the top of my head think of Anthony Bourdain. And JJ used to drive to and from work when he worked in the executive dining room of Morgan Stanley. One night after meeting some friends after he was done, he had one drink and then about four hours later was driving back home. He was cut off by a taxi. In order to avoid collision, he swerved to get out of the way, and he was stopped by the police. They approached him and almost immediately and roughly made him get out of his car, and they slammed J.J.'s head against the window, an approach they might not have used if he had been white. Get this. They charged J.J. with assault. It was actually outrageous. It was only because he knew some important people through his work at Morgan Stanley that he got out of jail and was able to perform community service and not have his life entirely ruined. I mean, the difference between him being George Floyd or Dave McAtee was that he knew these powerful folks. J.J. Johnson is a good man. He's a wonderful chef. He's a community activist, a good husband, a son, a father. He's an optimist. I know you'll enjoy hearing from him today, but the fragility of life, that's what I want to think about. If that had gone the wrong way, he might still be in jail. 
and not the great citizen of Harlem that he is. Okay, here are my five things this week. Number one, last week I had the most wonderful and unexpected day with my daughter, Exhibit C. We talked and talked more openly than we've done in years. I feel actually that we opened up a new whole path of candor and I respect her and I always loved her, but I'm feeling that I'm getting to know her more. And two, three, four, and five are just not going to come close to this one. This was way and above the best thing that happened to me and the thing that made my life better. Number two, I like getting my bills paid on time. Old school Lisa won't surprise you. I like to write out checks. I could do my online banking and I do some banking online. Okay, happy now. But there's a thing about writing a check. When you write the check, you know exactly how much you just spent on something. Oh, my car insurance costs that much? Really? Hmm, that's a lot. You know what I mean? You wouldn't have that experience if you just pressed a button. I really like seeing the stack of envelopes that are all stamped ready to go too. Okay, number three, fingernails in the time of coronavirus. I have little hands. Unlike some people, I'm fine with it, maybe even proud of them, and little feet. And I was never a person who really doted on my manicure and fingers and hands. And sometimes I would even be self-conscious when I was the one woman in a group who just didn't have it together, didn't have nail polish or pretty cuticles or whatever. But now nobody's getting their nails done. And I really like the way everybody's nails look sort of normal and, you know, unsophisticated. And I'm sure one day I'll get a manicure again. I can't can't imagine it'll be anytime soon, but I don't think it'll ever be a regular indulgence because... I just don't care about my nails that much. I do care about the women who work in that job, who who do nails and waxing and stuff. And, you know, I'm confident that most women are more vain than I am and that they will return to work soon. But uh, I do feel for them. And I do think you all need a waxing. Okay. So go to your local salon while I stay home. Um, Number four. Do you realize that everybody is kind of reachable now? Remember, you call somewhere and they'd say, oh, I'm sorry, so-and-so is on vacation, or I'm sorry, so-and-so is at a retreat, or so-and-so is uh, out of the office. Well, nobody's anywhere but home. So have you noticed it's easier to reach people? I certainly have, and I like it. And number five, a little departure for the week, but it's Ruth Bader Ginsburg. She inspires me so much. What tenacity, what purpose. Let's just all pray for her. And if we don't pray, think about her in a positive way. I'm so moved by her determination to outlive this administration. Ruth Bader Ginsburg is the one, totally. Coming up, Chef J.J. Johnson. Don't go away. Hi, it's Lisa Birnbach. We're back with my guest, J.J. Johnson. Welcome, J.J. Oh, thank you for having me. It's super exciting uh, to talk with you. Thank you. There's a new thought amongst white people, which is support black businesses. If you really mean to do something, show us with your money. That's something that 
should go without saying, and yet it doesn't go without saying. Why are we having to remind ourselves all the time to do that? I wrote an op-ed on uh, Esquire about that, you know. Yeah, I read Um, it. It was very powerful. And I'm not saying take all your money and support black business. I'm saying take 15% of where you would spend your money and take that 15% of your money and put it toward black business. And that most likely will help the business, but also impact the community that the business is in. You know, most black businesses are in black and brown communities. Um, and those bi- and that business is hanging on really tight. Um, it's a small mom and pop shop. Uh, they do a lot for their community. Uh, they help keep it together. They hate, help keep it going. And most people don't even know about those small business that are in those communities across the country. You know, we're not just talking Harlem, the Bronx, Queens, Brooklyn. We're talking Oakland, Detroit, North Carolina, Miami, mm-hmm. Florida, you know, Nashville. We're talking real communities that small business that are engraved in these communities that hold these communities together. And it would just, I think if white people go to these communities or these black owned business, they will understand the culture more. They will help push their narrative. Um, and I think it will, it will truly bring us together more than ever. Uh, most people that are going into black neighborhoods or, or shopping in black business, taking Uber or Lyft, jump out, uh, get their stuff and jump right back, back in their Lyft or their Uber and say, Oh yes, I was in that community, but no, you you didn't even you didn't even look around to see what else was there. So it's kind of like a, a form of bourgeois tourism or something. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah. I mean, like if you think of some some really great uh, black owned business, most people really do just are tourists to that business in that area that they go see. They really haven't looked around or or congregated or talked to the people before you go into that business, because it's kind of shameful to say is that most people are scared to come into a community. And I mean, I hear all the, I used to hear it all the time from people in Harlem. It's easier to get to Chicago than it is to get to Harlem. But I used to say, how is that possible? You have to drive past Harlem to get to Chicago. Wait, (laughs) you'd have to go to the airport and drive right through Harlem. But wait, people would actually say that to you, like as if that were an okay thing to say? Yeah, yeah. People would say to me, like, you know, like, hey, you know, I'm watching you in the food world. Hey, I'm watching you eat all around New York City. Why aren't you coming to eat to Har- Why aren't you coming to eat in Harlem? Right. Oh, it's so hard to get there. <laughs> like, if it was, like, if it's not a part of Manhattan. Oh, it's so hard. It's like, well, hello, people. Yeah. Every major train runs to Harlem. The one, the two, the three, the four, the five, uh, the A, the D. The C, every, every major train, right. every bus. Right. So I, and then they would say, well, it's easier to get to Chicago. I'm like, well, you have to drive past Harlem. Unless you're going to Newark Airport, you have to pass Harlem yeah. to get to LaGuardia or JFK. Well, that's Westchester, just, that's just know, a lame really. excuse. But, but um, speaking for the lame for a second, until this horrible moment of our seeing police brutality, which honestly, I, I, you would have thought I would have understood before the incident in Minneapolis and George Floyd. I, I never saw a list of Black-owned businesses before. And yeah. most people like me probably hadn't. So, so I don't think, of course, I've eaten in Harlem, but... Does that sound worse to say, oh, I've gone to Harlem to eat, to be like a, like a, a liberal? Ooh. I mean, I do it because I don't have an issue with it. And I haven't. How do I put it this way? I, I guess I just, I just don't want 
my new awareness of how to help the community look like I'm just doing it because it's trendy and cool and what I'm supposed yeah, to do. Yeah, I think if you're, I think if you're a good person, I think if you're a good person, it comes across sincere, comes across right, it comes across as good doing. Uh-huh. If you're a good person, you just partake in good things. You do good things in life. You didn't think about going to Harlem and saying, oh, my God, I need to support black business. You're like, oh, I'm going to look for delicious food or I want to see the culture or I want to understand or I want to be a part of it. I want to catch this amazing event going on at the Apollo. Right. But before right. we we'll go to the Apollo, we're going to go eat at this restaurant that I read about or that my friends told me about that mm-hmm. live in that neighborhood. Right. Right. It just becomes the, the, the way of life. Right. It's kind of like Nashville hot fried chicken. Yeah, right. It's kind of like, do you pay homage to the black women who started Nashville hot fried chicken? Or do you believe that it came from, you know, the white guy that has 20 Nashville hot fried chicken places, right? They're Nashville. That white guy who also grew up in Nashville has amazing fried chicken. They had the access to expand to do 20 of those restaurants. The black women are still struggling in their neighborhood. And if you were going to Nashville, you would probably go eat at their Nashville hot fried chicken place versus doing it just because. Right. If that makes some type of sense, right? It's not that you're, I, I think that's what, get, I think that's where, and also for me, gets, I'm getting a little upset these days. It's like, it doesn't matter if you're a liberal, you're a Democrat, you're a Republican. It's like, are you a good person? Yeah. Do you believe, right. do you believe in black lives? You know what? And, that's exactly you know, that's right. That's really what it is. And that's why I get, I get so upset because our country is led by someone who we know is not a good person. We see it every mm-hmm. day. And yeah. he and his enablers are giving permission to bad people to express not only their rage, which they have because why? Because they're the they're privileged, but the rage and the bigotry that they feel so deeply. I mean, it's frightening because I guess we didn't understand that. When we see the beautiful street in front of the White House, which is now behind so many gates, you can barely see it, and fences, when you see the beautiful mural of Black Lives Matter being defaced by some disgraceful white person, that's not a white person who's been hurt by the system because the system doesn't hurt white people. It just it just makes me so angry. And then and then we have these competing waves of anger. You know, we're all angry and that's not a way to go forward. Let's talk about your career, because as a black graduate of the Culinary Institute of America, sort of America's premier high cuisine, no cuisine cooking school, you must have been among a very small number. Yeah, yeah. When I when I first went to Culinary Institute of America in two thousand and two, yeah. all of us black students knew each other. We were all friends. Right. We were, when somebody came in, you're like, oh, another black guy or another black girl or somebody how black, many, right? How many, <laughs> how many students go to CIA? I mean, now it's much, now it's a lot more. When I was there, it was about 30, 30 kids in my graduating class. Every three weeks, a, a new group would come in. Of wow. 30, 30 would go on your internship, 30 would graduate, right? So three-week rotating program. Wow. You know, it was, it was bigger than that. I mean, I'm not sure. I think the school maybe was 1,500 kids oh, oh. at the time, right? Uh-huh. Um, uh-huh. And out it's of a lot, 15, It's a lot more. 
Right. Out of the 1,500, maybe 3% black right. at the time I was there. Right. Then when I went back for my bachelor's, it grew probably to about 5 to 8%. And now it's grown more, maybe like 10%. And I, I, think, I think the population of black students going to college across the country has, has grown or more kids are getting accepted. Mm-hmm. I think the biggest thing for me is what does your faculty look like, right? Right. At Culinary Institute of America, there was only one black chef. Oh, wow. Right? Oh, boy. That right. And before, that and before him, there was only one other black chef before him. So, right. like, I think that's a bigger, conver- you know, for me, that's a bigger thing to look at than kind of the student population. Well, uh, right. There's plenty of, sorry. All right. No, it says to you, this is great. You got into the most competitive cooking school in the country. Don't expect to get a job teaching here at the very least, you know, that this, this is not a message of you're going to go out there and take the world by storm or, or whatever the expression is. Yeah. And I mean, me and my mom have talked about this, you know, I grew up in the Poconos. My mom was the only, in, in, in the whole Pocono Mountain school district at one time, my mom was one of the only teacher, black teachers. Mm-hmm. And then the next person black to her was a custodian. Yeah. Uh, and I think that's when in, in a lot of schools across the country, you see the gym teacher, the athletic director, the coaches, the custodians, that, that's who's black in the school. Mm-hmm. Then you might see a little bit of sprinkles of a teacher here or a guidance counselor here or the executive assistant here. And I think that's where, you know, when kids are in school and they're looking up to people. They don't, they can't look, it doesn't matter what color you are. You can't look up and say, oh my God, my, my, I had four black teachers or my principal was black. Right. Right. And then when you get into society, you know, that authority can come from many different cultures and race. And I think that's where oppression really is because the people that are teaching you don't, don't look like you or look different than you but are majority white people and nobody can tell me that there aren't black teachers that are looking for jobs across America and they don't get them because it's because of the color of their skin. And that's another thing that we see also in the culinary world. Well, so as you were graduating from Culinary Institute, did you have a mentor there who said you can do this? You're really talented, JJ, or did you <laughs> your own way? Um, you know, the chef there's last name is Johnson, like me. Uh, he was he was a mentor. I think he, he tried to mentor all all the all the black students there, um, and told us that we all could be great. But there also was a lot of other white chefs there. You know, we used to call um, a, a chef. His name was uh, Clark. His name was Corky Clark. He taught um, fish butchery. Uh-huh. Uh, he was very he was very stern and tough on us all. He would definitely have his one on ones with black chefs. Uh, in reference, you know, research Patrick Clark, look at him. You can be just or great or better than him. And I remember having that conversation uh, with him, uh, but he was in the military. He saw the world very different than his peers, his French peers, French culinary professors in school. He made sure that, you know, he was the first chef that you had to come through when you came there to try to change the mindset of people. So mm-hmm. he was a, he was an ally uh, to the Black community. Uh-huh. And uh, what's the advice given to Black students there as well as white students there about finding your way? Because as most people know, I guess, 
the way you become a successful chef is to apprentice in kitchens of professional chefs. Correct. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, that, I think that's still the route. That's still the advice I give. Kids, you know, the CIA is, is training you to be the best. You know, I mean, our slogan when we were there was not preparing is preparing to fail. I still have that written on most of the top of my notebooks or mm-hmm. on the screen of my computer. It's like one of the best things. It's like, true not if you're not prepared you will fail so they want everybody that's graduating from there to be great you know if you can afford to go there and you or if you get accepted and then you can afford to go there they are the assumption is that you will be great yes you will be better than everybody else in the world just like if you go to harvard yale columbia right uh, mit right and so they were always pushing that way uh and i think the other biggest thing was that you have to go out and get your own externship or your own internship mm-hmm. we are we are not going to help you we're going to give you access but we're not going to help you. So yes, um, at that time when I was in culinary school, I wanted to go work at the Ritz-Carlton in Puerto Rico. I didn't get accepted. I wound up working uh, at Tribeca Grill under Drew Nipriot, probably one of the best owners who's a mentor to me still today. Stephen Lewandowski was a chef there. Really set the foundation for who I am and what I became and then where I started to look for jobs. Uh Right. I never wanted to work underneath the French guard. I never wanted to be screamed at that way or get abused or the stories that you would hear. Yeah. I, 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 one thing was I wasn't raised that way for people to talk to you like that. It was, you know, you will always, the way, if you show respect, you will get respect back. But that's just that what was happening in those kitchens. And I just wasn't built that way. And I didn't want to set myself up not to be successful, to, to be right. frank. Right. How can I, I'm living with my aunts in New York City. Uh, and my uncle, and how can I come home to my aunt and my uncle and say, yeah, today I got pots and pans thrown at me. Or talk to my father and my mother on the phone and say, hey, I would pop, my, my parents would go to the restaurant and talk to them. You know yeah. what I mean? Like, yeah. that's not how you treat people. doesn't yeah. matter, you know? So, well, and, and, and meanwhile, while you're coming up in the world, many people are watching reality TV and watching chefs be really inhumane to their staffs. I, I mean, that is a trope of, of the French kitchen, right? Of the fine kitchen, which is people screaming at one another. Yeah. And we used to say, yeah. I used to say to my peers, we're going to make sure we get two days off. We're going to make sure we give our staff two days off and our chefs two days off, that our chefs can have a mental stable life and we own or we manage kitchens. We yeah. will not be like our our successors. Yeah, we want to put out great, delicious food, run a very uh, strict and, and fun kitchen, right? But we're not going to mentally beat up people. And, and I mean, especially for the black kids that were coming up in those kitchens, mm-hmm. a lot of them have suffered from mental health. Yeah. Alcoholism, drugism, you name it, they got it. And they worked in those kitchens that we've all in those restaurants that you eat at today. And it's just sad to hear those stories. And now they feel comfortable coming out and talking about it because before it was, oh, you're just complaining. It was like, hey, man, no, I was being treated really different and I was the only black person there. And if I reached out to somebody, they would, if I reached out to HR or somebody, I would be looked at um, as a complainer or a crybaby. We're in the kitchens I worked when Tribeca Grill, Jane the Smith, Morgan Stanley Executive Dining Room. Those places were, I don't want to say super diverse, but they treated everybody fairly. Like if I worked, when I was at Jane, I worked there for four years. If I went to Jeffrey Leftcourt or Glenn Harris or Brian Ellis and said I had a problem with somebody and I was, and I was a sous chef, 
they would they would sit down with the person. I would be a part of the conversation. Yeah, that's you know, right. yeah, you know, they were forward thinkers. They wanted to change the the climate. But if you look at now, the Smith, right? The Smith is one of the busiest restaurants in New York City, right? right. Not because they put out really delicious food. They treat their employees really well, and it trickles into the customer. And yeah, uh, yeah, absolutely. Now, when you first started your uh, postgraduate life. Uh, would you be the only black person in the kitchen? Um, Tribeca Grill, I wasn't the only black person in the kitchen. Centrovino Teca, I was. Jane, I was. Now, mind you, I'm not counting. I don't count dishwashers. Okay. Right? And those were I people count. of color. Yeah. You're talking Yeah, about dishwashers that. are people of color in every restaurant. Mm-hmm. I'm talking about like line cooks, sous chefs, servers, right. bartenders, management. Jane, Ben, I think had like two black servers. So maybe it was like three of us there. Central Vinoteca, I was the only one. Morgan Stanley, of course, was a very diverse kitchen of, of women, old and young. Mm-hmm. Zach Friedman, who came from um, 11 Madison Park and um, uh, Chantrelle. Oh, uh, Chantrelle, yeah. Yeah, so mm-hmm. he worked at Chantrelle and I worked underneath Zach and Zach treated me and he, he truly showed me how to treat people truly fair with them. Um, being, I was probably the youngest person in the kitchen and having a lot of people that were there for a really long time, but diverse. Uh, and then when, you know, I started running my own kitchens, I would probably say my kitchens were the, probably the most diverse kitchens in the world. And when I say in the world is because uh, when I ran the Cecil in Harlem, you know, the kitchen spoke 10 different languages. Oh my. Right. Incredible. You know, everything from yeah. French to Tibetan to Spanish to a native language to Punjabi to, you know, you name it, it was there and it was in the kitchen. Uh And that's what I think a kitchen should feel like. And it made when people came to interview, like, oh my God, I want to work here. There's somebody that looks like me. Yeah. Right? This feels Um, familiar. Yeah. yeah. And you know, the the director of operations was a woman, Beatrice Stein. The GM was Lisa Cash. You know, Alexander was, you know, the creator. Mr. Park, uh, Richard Parsons was the owner of, of the space. And it, it just, that was what then set the, the tone and the true foundation for me when I went out on my own and, and started Field Trip, which is a rice bowl shop in Harlem. And uh, our investor pool is very diverse with men, women, people of color. My, our team has women, has white men, has, it has everybody. It, it truly looks, it feels and looks like what I say is like, it should look like what the country looks like. Mm-hmm. And that's what Field Trip is. And that's what Field Trip, as we grow, will reflect, like the corporate team will look like the country. The, the, the chef owners in the space probably mostly will be women because they're always more qualified for the job than men. Field Trip is, we have a management training program right now. Our, our two managers going through the training program are women. Not because we're just looking towards women, because when we're interviewing the people, they're the most qualified. So... I, I try to keep it really fair. I try to make sure that I'm being respectful and understanding. And I think that's the biggest thing when you are hiring people of color is that people of color have a little bit of baggage that comes with them, not because they want it to, just because of the way society has been built. And I think that's why I've been very successful with the uh, black and brown people that work for me, just because I can understand what they're going through because either I, my family has went through it. Well, I personally have went through it 
or I just know that's just what it is. And I'm not saying it's that's your scapegoat, but I understand and let's try to work, but try to push forward from that. Well, it's so interesting, your kind of heightened sensitivity and your experience has taken you from really the top of the food world when you won a James Beard Award for your cookbook to a restaurant that you own and operate that is a more everyday food for people. I love the name Field Trip, by the way. Um, And I want to tell you, I ordered uh, dinner from Field Trip last week and your server, whom I spoke to on the phone, was amazing. It was Asia. Was oh, Asia, yes, 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 Asia. Okay, yep. So here's what happened. I put in the order on your form and I said that my boyfriend was allergic to allium. Now, you have all these places you can say you're allergic to gluten and to dairy and to lots of things, but it didn't have allium. Why would it? Which I should tell the listeners who don't know, it's, it's garlic and onions or mostly the onion family. So. Mm-hmm. So we put in the order and said, please um, note that we're allergic to that. And I get a phone call a few minutes later. Hi, Lisa, this is Asia. I just want to, I'm very concerned. Is it a real allergy or is it a preference? Because (laughs) I really don't want you to get sick. So we discussed it. Then she called us back after she spoke to the chef. I mean... She didn't know I was about to interview you. She was just doing her job. And then the food was great. And do you remember last week there was a mammoth thunderstorm? Like, yes. Yes, Well, unfortunately, that was the night we ordered. And when she called me back about the food, I said, hey, Asia, it's really okay. We can cancel it. I hate for, she told me the delivery person was on a bike. I said, I don't think that's, that's necessary. She said, no, no, he's almost there. I mean, and the food was still warm and it was great. But but yeah, what you're doing is serving food that is essentially the, the building block is a bowl of, of rice. Why did you decide to go that direction as opposed to, you know, something more hoity-toity? <laughs> Um, you know, I've been fortunate to travel the world. I cook in Ghana, Singapore, Israel, India. And when I was when I was always in these places, rice would come out to the center of the table and everybody would be so excited. They would be, they didn't care about the proteins. They loved the vegetables, but everybody would be, first place your spoon would go would be to grab that rice, maybe grab the bottom of the pot of the rice that was crunchy. Uh-huh. And I would watch and be like, what? I mean, rice is just terrible. Like, why are you even going yeah. to get this? And then I started to eat the rice and I was like, oh my God, this is so flavorful. Look how the individual grains, when does it taste like this? Realizing that the production of rice and other- rice. (laughs) Right, it's not our rice, right? But the production of of the rice in these countries are like freshly milled, beautiful rice coming from a small village. So I started to do research on rice and I looked for the granddaddy and grandma grains of the world. I teamed up with some, with Anson Mills, with Glenn Roberts and some other- rice farmers around the country and, you know, started to really find some beautiful rice. Most of the rice that we get at Field Trip comes freshly milled in right from the farm. Nothing is bleached or enriched that you buy on the shelf. Uh, Each rice bowl tells you a story of where that rice comes from, of of why you're on a field trip. So if you have this sticky Uh rice with the green curry, right, 
you feel like you're in Southeast Asia, or if you're having a crispy chicken with the Carolina gold rice, you're in the American South. Uh, brisket with the brown Texas brown rice is Tex-Mex, Texas. So everywhere the rice tells you the story of of where the rice is coming from. And it's to celebrate what I feel is the most disrespected grain in the in, in America and trying to bring some respect back to it. And and it's something that we have eaten our whole life. Um, doesn't matter where you're from, you have a rice or a rice dish that you can celebrate. And why our slogan is rice is culture. Well, I have to say, growing up, eating minute rice never did anything for me. I never, never liked rice. And you're right. It's only from travel and from eating in, in better restaurants that, and in, in Southeast Asian restaurants that rice started to mean anything to me. And uh, it is a trip around the world at a uh, field trip. And plus... Field trip was always the best day at school, let's be honest. It was always. Yes, it was. Always it was the always the best day at school. Yeah, <laughs> by far. It's, it's, it's really terrific. And, you know, you didn't have to say anything to me for me to understand that you had trained your staff really well. The caring, you can't, you can't fake caring. And what we experienced was the real thing. So, Oh, that, that's great. And I will let Asia know that, that, that act brings a real big smile to my face because, you know, right now it's, it's, it's difficult, right? People, we can't interact with you face to face. So we, we pick up the phone and call you if we don't understand your order, right? And then it might take a couple extra minutes or the person in front of you, that's the guest that might be walking in, we say, give us two minutes, we're on the phone. It's just a totally different interaction right now. Right. And I'm always trying to figure out how to uh, make sure people are having the best experience when we can't physically be in front of you. Well, that was one of them for sure. Let me just ask you before we get to your five things, what is your vision for the restaurant business going forward? It's a big question, but... Uh, for, the, sure. for the restaurant business as a whole or for as my restaurant whole, business? Um, I would say as a whole um, or as a whole in New York, however you want to interpret it. But, you know, right now this summer, everybody is putting tables outside and the city is being pretty accommodating, letting people take parking spots and turn them into cafes and so on. But what happens... What happens in the fall? New York is not a city that uses heat lamps in outdoor spaces. Is that going to become a new way of doing things? Or when the weather gets cold, what happens? If this pandemic should continue on for the next year, as it probably will, how do we as good citizens help your restaurant business? So I think any, I think every, I call, the, I call COVID like the true reset. Yeah. And the restaurant business, like if somebody's reopening their restaurant, it's not a reopening, it's a grand opening. Mm-hmm. And if you are trying to come back to the same restaurant or do the same thing you did in the past, you're going to run into this obstacle, like you just said. Okay, what happens when there's no more outside seating? Right. What happens on that stormy, rainy day? And I've seen some really great restaurants give people you know, these tier of things that I think we all want. We don't want to really go in a grocery store right now because we know that it's overcrowded and packed and we don't want to be on top of people. 
right? We realize that we can get better food from in our local grocery store because we can get it delivered right to us from a restaurant purveyor or our restaurant is now a grocery store. So they have beautiful things. Yes, that is. Uh, Or we don't, we know we've been trying to find this amazing wine in my wine shop that I can never find that I drink at these beautiful restaurants, but now I can go buy them in the restaurant. So I think restaurants that are able to give you some type of food to take away in a grocery form along with their wine or alcohol that you can buy from them with food that you can either sit down if it's outside or take out or delivery restaurants have to have multiple avenues of revenue. So for us at field trip, we have takeout and delivery. We're good. And then we also feed people in need, right? That's what we do at field trip. We, and then we hours of the morning, five o'clock to nine o'clock before we open, we do repackaged a reheatable, meals right off of our menu that we team up with with like groups like rethink food robin hood foundation Uh right to then put back into our direct community of upper manhattan harlem and the bronx so that's our other revenue area right where we do it at cost but it allows us to keep ours people but like restaurants like coat i don't know if you're familiar with coat which is a korean right they've right they've done steakhouse they've done an amazing job through the pandemic i've ordered their beef butcher box for fourth of july Right. Wow. Because yeah. of like, why would I go to the, now it's a little pricey, but why would I go to, I can't get these cuts of meat from the supermarket. Right. Right. So let me get this. I have beautiful burgers, steak. I can grill this. We have, we're, we have our Korean barbecue theme and it works and it's at home and it feels safe. So that box is $250. If you do a hundred of those boxes a week, yeah, that's you more money than you would actually have. Right. Yeah. yeah. And in your, so that's how I look at the future of restaurants. You have to really be doing um, some niche or pivots uh, to to make it in society. But we're going to see a lot of our favorite restaurants closed, and it, it, it's, it's it's a sad movement, sad moment in this movement for restaurants because as more and more people work from home, that impacts these communities where our favorite restaurants were in because that's where people were going after work. So. Right. The West Village, Midtown, NoHo, Soho. Some of these restaurants won't be there because, as we just heard, or I don't know if you heard this, Lisa, but Google's not coming back to end of 2021 in the office. They, they're, wow. they're not opening the office. I didn't so. know that, but you know, I was reading that uh, there was an article in the New York Times this week about Midtown and how the restaurants and the that uh, Midtown may really be hit hard um, because who wants to go there? Um, you know, it's a place that you only ate at five days a week anyway, because it's where people work. Midtown had a weekend food life. And I think the bigger players are going to really help in this moment, right? Like Tishman Spire, you know, that they, they own a lot of Midtown, right? Yeah. They're going to, they're going to be the ones to dictate what Midtown was. They did it after nine 11. And I think they'll do a great job after COVID-19 and this pandemic, right? Because they have the resources, they partner with really good people and they understand the culture of New York City. I think the same thing like if Madison Square Garden doesn't come back, there's no more Penn Station. There's no more 34th Street, right? These places are really the anchor to, to small business or business in these areas. Without them, there, there, there is nothing. Yeah, it'll be very interesting to see. Well, JJ, before you go, you know, it's, it's the, the shtick of our show. It's five things that make life better for you. So let's get to your list. Okay. Um, 
number one. So yeah, uh, family has always been the foundation uh, for, you know, a Johnson. I watched my grandfather. My grandfather's 95 years old and he's been the anchor of our family to date. Um, he always made sure if my parents couldn't make it happen, he was there to help them make it happen so mm -hmm. that we, that, so me and my sister can make it happen. And now my immediate family uh, with my wife, Mia, and we have twins, a boy and a girl. She's really the anchor for me. She really is the one that enables me to do the things in life that I'm able to do. And she doesn't, and she's not a stay-at-home mom. She uh -huh. is a nurse. She's been working very hard through this pandemic herself as a nurse, uh, running her hospital and her floor and, wow. and converting to an ICU unit. So yeah, family for me has been really big. Um, and even with my, with my in-laws and everything, we, we, we really believe in looking out for each other. And especially during this hard time, Family, I think, is really the key. And if I tell people and my friends all the time, if you haven't checked on your family member, give them a call because mental health is really uh, hurting a lot of people. As I lost an uncle to mental 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 health during this time, so I'm so uh, sorry. Yeah, yeah. It, this is a mental health crisis as well as a physical mm -hmm. and economic crisis. That is for sure. Uh, number two, you said you're real friends. Yeah, yeah, real friends. I tell you. There's some friends that I haven't talked to in a long time, but were the first ones to check up on me uh, during the pandemic. You know, my buddy, Justin Gaines, who has two restaurants in North Carolina, he would call me and text me every day. How's the business? How's the business? Hang tight. Fight through. You know how to fight. You know better than all of us. Right now, yeah. I, I didn't talk to Justin for two years. He's right. one of my closest friends. And uh, now we talk every day again. My buddy, Kamal Grant, uh, who owns Sublime Donuts in Atlanta, you know, it's like the God, he's like godfather of my kids, you know checks on me all the time. So real friends in these moments really push through, but you have to, you know, you, I think sometimes we forget who our friends are. Um, yes, yeah, if they're not people we see all the time. Right. And we have to remember who was with us, who's with us when we're at our ultimate low or in the darkest moments, mm -hmm. because those are the people that will always be with you not the people that are with you when the, the sun is shining or there's a rainbow. Those are easy people to be around you because they want to be with you in the moment. Yes. So I'm always very fortunate for my real friends. Excellent. Number three is good partners. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Good, good partners. And when I say good partners, I'm, I'm really fortunate. You know, I have a television show on the Clio Network called Just Eats uh, with TV One, who's been a really great partner. They were the first people along with Powerhouse Productions out of New Jersey to give me a shot to do a cooking show on television. Um, culinary Ambassador with MasterCard. They were with us through the thick and thin at field trip and making sure that um, whatever we needed, they would be able to help us through those times with the financial access that they have. Uh, BuzzFeed on the Tasty platform really helped me spread the word. So, you know, good partners, I think, are always around to go as you grow in any, in, any, in any aspect of your career. As you grow, you should be partnering with good partners, just like you look to hang out with good people, making sure that they're doing good things in the world, that they're staying true to themselves, and they're not just being, uh, quote unquote, putting a black square on their Instagram page because it's cool. Right, right. Right. Yeah. I, and I've been reading about how some uh, celebrity chefs um, who were supported by Stephen Ross, the real estate mm -hmm. guy, how they 
you know, were very disappointed that he was supporting Donald Trump and his reelection. And they did write to him and ask him to reconsider. But I guess, you know, you, you one has no control over that. You know, that's a hard one, right? You know, and, right. uh, you oh, know Miss D- Richard Parsons, who's the ex-CEO of Time Warner and Citibank, is a mentor yeah. to me as I grow in my career in some of these areas I don't know. And he's the one that told me, it was like, some of these people do really good business and their companies stand for something, right? But yeah. who they are as an individual is different than their company. So like Stephen Ross's, I believe like his company does a lot of great impact work, right? Now, his company is surrounded with different people. He doesn't call the shot. But who he is as a person is who, what he supports. Now, can those two things intertwine? I think that's where it gets kind of hard sometimes, right? And, and for yeah. me, it's like, the, is the CEO of MasterCard bad versus MasterCard, the company? Right. You know what I mean? Right. Um, and where do, the and, CEO of MasterCard is great, but he's great. <laughs> but, um, but I mean, I think that's where it gets kind of funky, right? And I mean, David Chang came out and said Stephen Ross was one of the only people to ever believe in him when he was raising money. Nobody right. else wanted to give him money. Right. He never talked to him about who he supported as presidential, right? But it gets really hard when you talk about a president like this because we're not talking about policies. We're talking about uh-huh. the way people live life. Right, right, right. No, it's very complicated. And and I guess the reason I bring it up is I think that you have been very graceful in the way you have grown and developed. And one has to be somewhat graceful. You're grateful, as David Chang is, to the opportunity. And then uh, something you could never have expected or foreseen changes all that. And then what? And it's very... Yeah, and then what do you do? You just like go and say, here, give all your money back? You want to be principled, but you also want to be able to employ as many people as you can and help them and their family. So it's it's a tough one. And I think somebody who's done that really well has been Jay-Z, right? He's been able to take some bad people's money Mm -hmm. uh, along the way and knew that he would get to a point in his life where he could have direct impact in society, right? So Mm -hmm. sometimes it's like, okay, I'm going to do this along the way. I know this taking this money from this person isn't right, but this isn't my final stop. I'm going to, this might help me get to here to here. So when I'm able to get to my final stop, I can then help to change society the way I see it. And we're seeing Jay-Z do that now, right? Right. You know, with, with, you know, helping prison reform or the NFL or this and that. He's able to do that because he was able to build up his money in his bank account. (laughs) Has he? Boy, has he. Yes. Yes. Exactly. (laughs) Number four is focus. Yeah. You know, my focus is, you know, I I use a slogan or terms called maintain the light in the tunnel. I'm never trying to reach the light at the end of the tunnel. And if I can maintain the light, then I know that I'm on the right path because the tunnel moves left to right and just keep maintaining the light and you'll be all right. And that's how I focus. And and, in Black Lives Matter through, through through that time or with the George Floyd stuff, I started to not see the light in that tunnel. And I, I had to figure out how personally to refocus, use my energy to potentially in my small society or my small voice, uh, help maintain that light and, and, and let, and let other people see that light. A lot of people are losing light. Yeah. Um, so focus is the key and focus on your goals and don't ever, it doesn't matter how old or how young, 
how young you are, you can always accomplish what you can accomplish if you stay focused. Absolutely. And that's a perfect lead into number five, being true to yourself. People are like, stay humble, stay humble. And I'm like, I (laughs) have a mom, I have a wife, I have aunts, I have a sister. Right. If I didn't, if I didn't stay humble, they would come for me. Uh, (laughs) But, but I think the true part of it is, do you do things that you believe in? That, that you can look in the mirror every day and say, that I did that because that's me. Now, people might not agree with you, but if you can look in the mirror and say, I'm doing that because that's what I believe in and that's who I am, I think is, is the most important thing every day. And if you can do that, you can move through society, you can move through life, and, and, and you can be a great person. So I truly try to stay true to myself and what I believe in for myself, my family, society, my business as I progress every day. Well, you're a you're a good guy, JJ, and I've really enjoyed talking to you. And I enjoyed eating at Field Trip, and I've enjoyed reading about you and your editorials. And I wish you all the best. Oh, thank you very much, and it was a great conversation. Um, and thank and thank you very much. You've been listening to Five Things That Make Life Better with me, Lisa Birnbach. My guest this week has been Chef J.J. Johnson, owner of Field Trip Restaurant in Harlem, and James Beard, award-winning cookbook author of Between Harlem and Heaven. You can follow J.J. on Instagram and Twitter at Chef J.J. and on Facebook at Field Trip Harlem. If you enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe and rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. Every positive review helps new listeners find our show. My blog is at lisabernbach.com where you'll find links and photos to all the things in this program. This podcast is produced in New York City by thefieldtv.com. My engineer is Kevin Watkins. My team is Spressa Arucci, Michael Port, Boko Haft, and Sam Haft. Until next week, wear a mask and act natural. Bye-bye. That was Five Things with Lisa Bernbach. New episodes every Friday, if she remembers.